Asia Tech Podcast. 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 Hello, welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. This is Ashley Talks. My name is Graham Brown, joined in the studio today by possibly one of the hardest working authors in Asia. <laughs> Delighted to have Ashley Galina Dudaranok in the show. Ashley, how are you doing? Doing fantastic. Hi, Graham. Hi, guys. Great to have you here. Instantly recognizable personality in Asia. Ashley Talks, as you know, and that's seen Ashley on YouTube or on LinkedIn. How does it feel now to be a published author? Well, feels awesome. Feels awesome. Can't, can't believe we did it. Yeah, not easy, eh? Everybody talks about writing a book. I think every- we were no one. And right now, published author, Amazon bestseller. That's funny, huh? Exactly. We're going to talk about unlocking the world's largest e-market, obviously a guide to selling on Chinese social media. That's the top of the billing tonight. We're going to talk all about that and what the book's about, why people need to read it, and obviously why you wrote the book. So you launched this book, well, you've only just launched it this month, haven't you? So has everything settled down yet or is things still a little bit crazy? Uh, Well, it's still a little bit crazy. We just launched it last week and it hit Amazon bestseller. And uh, so this is week two, and it's also Chinese New Year. So yeah. we have a lot of people ordering it for, let's say, a New Year's gift, right? Spring Festival. Um, and yeah, it's extremely exciting. I think, um, you know, it's important when you publish a book, you basically just need to keep the momentum. And uh, we are issuing hard copies now and placing them in um, in physical stores. And we're working on audiobooks. So it's, um, it's still ongoing. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's never-ending, the life of an author. I, have you done a book signing yet? Are you going to do one of those? Do, do authors do those these days? Yeah, we had one last week. Oh, and okay. Literally, it was on, on Wednesday. We launched the book on Monday, and we did the signing on Wednesday. I felt like, you know, like that person from one of the movies, you yeah. know, teaching, signing books, pictures. And, you know, it's so cute. People were queuing up right. to get their books signed. I felt so important. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, it's still in these days of of digital, people still like getting their hands on the physical book, don't they? I yeah, I was I was actually surprised because you can also get get it on Amazon, right? Mm. And uh, a lot of people read on Amazon, but somehow we sold a lot more books physical. Yeah, uh, which was quite surprising. Again, I I did not expect it. Hmm. Interesting. Well, you're based in Hong Kong. I think it's worth putting everything into a little bit of context because you know we talked about this when you did asia tech podcast stories some time ago you're originally from russia aren't you you moved to china you now live in hong kong it's been a bit of a journey i mean what you've achieved in china is quite remarkable really i mean writing a book on china as an outsider effectively sort of helping people understand that market give us a little bit of background because i you know for those people that don't know you well enough. So people have probably seen you around and you know, instantly right. recognizable, as I say, but what's the story? I mean, how did you come to get to go, you know, be in China in the first place? What was the story there? Right. Right. I think the, the first thing uh, people say when they see me and when I talk about China, they say, my goodness, why is this blonde girl, right. you know, with a long, blonde, blonde braid is telling us about marketing in China. And um, then I need to tell them a bit uh, the story that I came to China 12 years ago. I lived in mainland for five years. I speak, read, write Mandarin Chinese. And for the past seven years, I've been working with marketing in China, Chinese social media. Um, I write for tons of publications about Chinese consumers, um, uh, social media and China market in general. I also speak at a lot of events. 
Um, last year, I was selected by Alibaba to be the global influencer. Um, so basically, they invite about a dozen people from around the world to join their 1111 shopping festival and um and um um basically meet their top executives for 3 days discuss where alibaba is going so i was invited last year to join that exclusive group right and right now a published author and uh, doing you know having a youtube channel so all these things happen because of china because of the rise of social media because of the rise of digital and um, yeah, but in terms of my own journey, I was telling you last time, yeah, we spoke about it. I was born in Asia, so I'm I'm almost Asian. I was born in the far east of Russia. Mm. Mm. Right on the like, far east. I mean, geographically, yeah, was it Vladivostok? I can't remember. Well, ah, that's right. That's yeah. right. You still remember. I don't well, I mean, it's right on the eastern side. It's that bit that sort of comes down in that peninsula, isn't it? I can't remember exactly where it is, but it's sort of nearer China and Japan than it is Moscow, exactly. right? Exactly. Of course. So we are basically, we border on, let's say, uh, North Korea, China and Japan. Yeah. Broader border. Yeah. Not directly. But that is the furthest away place basically in Russia from Moscow. And it's also the end station of Trans-Siberian Railway. So it, it's a very special city. I was born uh, back in Soviet Union, right? Non-existing country. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was the um, uh, closed military port. Right. So it was a very safe place and you couldn't really get in or out without permission. But it was very safe. We always had the good stuff. You know, in Soviet Union, it was difficult to get international, let's say, produce, etc. But because we were a port city, we got a lot of things firsthand and before anybody and everybody else. So it was really cool. And we also had a lot of Asians. So I was born in Asia. Mm. We had a lot of Asians around, Koreans, Japanese and Chinese. And my first country to visit um, abroad was actually China and then Japan, Korea, right? Mm-hmm. And then when I, was, when I was 11, I moved to UK. Uh, my dad sent uh, myself and my brother to, um, to uh, get education abroad. So I moved to UK. Then I joined him in New Zealand, uh, my brother in New Zealand. Then I relocated to China and now Hong Kong. So made in USSR, but international. Yeah, exactly. Best of many worlds as well. I mean, it's a fascinating journey. Do you, just out of curiosity, do you, how good is your Chinese, your Mandarin? Because, I mean, I live here in Japan, so I'm quite familiar with what it's like to speak. Do you uh, speak Japanese? I do, yeah, I do. But to speak Japanese in business, especially reading and writing is something else. How's it, how's it in China? Have you sort of mastered that? Yeah. Um, my Chinese is good. Um, it's not as good as it used to be seven years ago because living in Hong Kong definitely takes mm. its toll on your Mandarin Chinese. But I did my business degree. I studied a business administration in China with Chinese students in Chinese language. And even now, um, just a couple of months ago, I got my first TV program. So I now run a one minute show on Now TV here in Hong Kong. And this show is being broadcast in mainland China and in Hong Kong. So it's in Mandarin Chinese. Hmm. So with a bit of practice, I'm still able to, let's say, get that TV quality right. Chinese going. Yeah, but it's not obviously it's not uh, it's not that 100% native now, but I would say still say it's like 85 90%. So right. that. By far, it's good enough. I mean, that's the and point, isn't it? it? Yeah, I read and write. Right now, I'm primarily yeah. Thai, but I still read and write. Yeah, you need Chinese yeah, if you work with China. Of course. Excellent. <laughs> good. All right, well, let's talk about the book, Ashley. Now, yeah. let's talk about what the book's about. And 
you know, what the sort of the key themes in the book, I mean, there's three things that you, you sort of focus on in the book, which I want to dive into. And then I'm curious to understand why you wrote that book. So yeah. unlocking the world's largest e-market. So, yeah. so we understand, I mean, people know China's big, but yeah. maybe people don't realize how big the e-commerce side of things is, and especially social media. Help us understand, put some numbers or maybe some comparisons here, because the criticism has always been, yeah, China is a market of a billion plus people, but right. technologically, it's kind of behind things, you know, in the US. That's how people have thought for many years, but obviously things have changed in the last five years. Help us understand what's going on now and what kind of levels we've achieved in China with social media and e-commerce. Right, right. So, um, simply put, China is not only the world's largest, let's say, e-market, right, and uh, the largest uh, consumer market. Um, it's also the most advanced um, um, market globally in terms of social media, cross-border e-commerce, uh, new retail, that concept of unifying online and offline experiences. And they are literally ahead of the world. Um, in all that. There are many reasons for that. Um, firstly, it's how fast China advanced in the digital space, right? Um, uh, back in the 90s or early 2000s, they barely had cell phones. They never had landlines. Many people never had laptops, right? They, they, they just never had, uh, I mean, desktop computers. And then within a decade, with the cheap internet, with cheap technology, cheap devices, they ju just jumped into uh, this mobile uh, market, uh, and uh, they started shopping through mobile devices. They started, um, you know, doing social media. They started blogging, and uh, all that went explosive. Um, China. The second thing about China is um, it, it's like Europe, right? We spoke about it last time that it's not really one country. It's a huge collection mm. of um, uh, provinces and big cities. And it's really um, what unites that whole huge space and 1.3 billion consumers is the language that no matter whether they are in Urumqi or Guangzhou or Beijing or Chongqing, all of them car currently right now speak Mandarin Chinese and they can type and they can uh, they basically can communicate with each other. So that's that's extremely unique. And that also creates a lot of opportunities. Besides that. Um, I mean, just their buying power, because in the past 15, 20 years, Chinese government's been focusing on relocating the focus, like economic focus of the whole country from cheap manufacturing, from, you know, resources and infrastructure build up into service industry, into, um, you know, this consumerism. And they have succeeded. They fueled, uh, they, they, you know, they fueled and um pushed people to buy more, to travel more. And uh, a lot of tech giants like Alibaba or Tencent or late uh, before Baidu, they actually helped make that reality. So it's an extremely unique market. They are definitely ahead of the world. How and in which aspects and what is the technology we can talk, I think, for hours. Mm. Do ask what's the most important and interesting, and I will tell you. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to take on board, not just because of the size of the market, but because what they have inside of China, not a lot of people are familiar with. I mean, the, the, we, we're just starting to hear Alibaba outside of China. I mean, people now are starting to get familiar with seeing Jack Ma 
on right. the TV. So we're, we're starting to see China come outside, especially into Southeast Asia and, you know, venturing into the US and so on. So it's starting to happen. People are very curious. What do we need to know? I mean, we talked quite in depth about WeChat in the last session that we did when we did your ATP stories. I mean, people right. would have heard of WeChat and people may think that WeChat's a bit like, well, WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger, but it's different, isn't it? I mean, let's just start there. That's property. And you talk about Chi WeChat as China's operating system in the book. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so WeChat is an operating system for life in China, right? It's not just a messaging app. Of course, it has social media capabilities. So you can uh, create groups, you can chat, you can, you can share your moments like a Facebook wall, but it's not a social media platform. At the same time, WeChat has um, uh, sales capabilities, right? Uh, for example, you can set up uh, as a brand, you can set up a shop and people can uh, read your news like a newsletter and they can also buy. You can launch uh, um, customer relations, basically CRM systems and loyalty programs all through WeChat. So, for example, you want to buy a, a cup of Starbucks coffee and uh, your second visit will be 20 percent off. Mm -hmm. You don't need to carry a coupon or the loyalty card. Everything is integrated in WeChat. And before your coupon, let's say, expires, it's sends you also notifications and um, the shops also receive notifications how many customers loyal customers are around and you can actually launch this kind of real uh, life real-time promotions yeah so it's cool for both users and brands mm -hmm. um, so it has those capabilities at the same time WeChat is also not a sales platform so it's not Tmall and it's not Taobao it's not JD right so um, another thing, another aspect to it is um, um, uh, testing the market, right? WeChat is a great uh, way for you to, um, you know, tap into some bloggers and do marketing and uh, grow your database of Chinese consumers. Because in China, uh, collecting emails, yeah, that's what we do in the West. We just want a database of emails to send people basically newsletters and keep selling them uh, our products or services. But in China, email is not used and phone number uh, people don't share. So your only way to collect China database, China consumer database is uh, to collect their WeChat ID or Weibo ID and keep communicating with them on those platforms. So it's a great way to build that database and activate it through promotions, bloggers, campaigns, uh, you know, pushing the messages, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, um, Having those marketing and advertising capabilities, WeChat is not a marketing platform. Uh, it's not like Facebook. Facebook makes 90% of their money through advertising, right? They, they sell our data to advertisers and people push, uh, push their promotions. Um, WeChat doesn't do that. Only about 18% of their revenue as a group, Tencent, right, uh, come from advertising. The rest comes from gaming. It comes from payments. It, ha it comes from all sorts of things. So although they provide that opportunity for uh, brands to promote, that's not the core. So what is the core if um, uh, marketing is not the core, if sales is not the core, if social is not the core? Uh, the core is functionality. They are trying to make the life of simple Chinese people easy and simple and digital. So uh, what do I mean by that? You want to hail a taxi, you don't need to go to Uber. You just go to your uh, WeChat. You want to book a flight, 
you want to book an apartment, a hotel, or uh, you want to queue in your favorite restaurant, you can do it through WeChat. Mm. You want to, um, um, I do not know, right now they even issue... Passports, right? Yeah, exactly. Which had ID as a passport. You want to check in or right, cross right. border. I mean, it's crazy stuff. Let's go, go back to the payment side. I think that's really important because I know you've mentioned that. I think that's a really big part of what people need to understand a bit better about China. It's just how embedded that payment system is and not just in purchasing digital goods, but in day-to-day life. Day life. What, yeah. what could you buy with the payment system? Just give us some examples. What do you use it for? What can't you buy with okay. it? I would, I would say, uh, well, in fact, a couple of months ago, probably three or four months ago, um, I went to Shanghai for for a week, and literally seven days, and that was the first time I went to Shanghai with zero cash. I had zero JMB. I went with my WeChat, basically with my phone, and I was fine. From taxi from the airport to all my lunch. Uh, lunch uh, bills hmm. to uh, buying, like literally going into the shop and I bought a coat. Everything was through WeChat. Is that and tied to a bank account or do you have a, a, a 10 cent specific account? How does that work? Yeah, it, it is it is connected with your... So basically there are two ways. If you are on uh, WeChat uh, wallet inside China, right? So you, you reside in China, you've got China bank accounts, etc. cetera. Uh, you can set up your own, let's say 10 cent, uh, you know, 10 cent system and you can uh, deposit money there directly. But most of the people connect it with their bank cards. If you are outside of China, uh, like me in Hong Kong, it's still considered outside of China. So I use a different version of WeChat. I use uh, we, uh, WeChat international version. I can only connect it with my bank accounts. And uh, it just basically uh, became possible for me to even connect it with Hong Kong bank accounts a couple of months back. Before that, um, I had to ask my colleagues in China to send me money to my WeChat wallet to be able to spend it. Right. And um, uh, most of the countries around the world with WeChat, um, they do not allow connecting bank accounts. Apart from South Africa, um, uh, only like Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong and Macau allow you to connect it with basically with bank account. The rest of the countries, you need to ask somebody with this, uh, you know, with with the B to send you that money before you can spend them. Do do people get paid by WeChat? Would an employer use that to give people their salary? Um, actually, a lot of, like, for example, a lot of bloggers. I mean, I'm in marketing, right? And when we pay bloggers, a lot of bloggers prefer to be paid through WeChat. Right. Um, a lot of them are, uh, prefer to be paid uh, by Alipay. So previously, it was all about um, if it's, let's say, below 10,000 RMB or 5,000 RMB, they prefer to be paid um, uh, to their WeChat. And if it's above, they wanted to be paid to um, Alipay. Mm-hmm. And if it was, let's say, above uh, twenty or 30,000 RMB, uh, they would say, okay, you can transfer to my bank account. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, WeChat, together with uh, a lot of brands and bloggers, they have worked very hard last year to actually increase that threshold. So what I mean by that, they actually recruited a couple of brands like Mini Cooper cars, and uh, bloggers launched campaigns encouraging people to buy uh, 300,000 or 500,000 or 1 million uh, B worth of cars and uh, accessories um, through WeChat. 
right? So exclusive campaigns through WeChat. And people started spending that. Mm. Two years ago, uh, you could buy stuff, but probably not above, again, 10,000. Right now, people spend a lot of money on WeChat and this threshold is, you know, is um, um, increasing. Right. Put, let, let's people understand that a little bit. So a million million is about what 150,000 US dollars approximately yeah. so i mean yeah. it means substantial figures right it's i mean substantial figures yeah right you could even buy a small apartment with those kind of numbers right i mean I've, we haven't quite got there yet but pretty much everything that you need to buy you can do through wechat yeah and yeah. alipay is the alibaba Platform. Alipay, yeah, is the uh, it's used to Alipay is basically the biggest uh, online payment system in China. Uh, this last year, I think, um, yeah, last year in 2017, um, uh, Alipay for the first time in their life was below 50%. I think it was 48 or 45% of the total market value. And um, uh, WeChat rose and grew exponentially last year. So they're now occupying about 35 to 40% of the market. And the rest 10% are all sorts of other uh, digital payment systems. Mm. Uh, but the, the market is growing so fast and uh, it's just absolutely fascinating. Um, people say that China is going to be the first cashless society. And I always thought that, you know, we're not there yet because Chinese love their cash. And that is true. Uh, it's not going to disappear, in my opinion. It's not Cash is not going to disappear. But the amount of cash uh, transactions went down significantly. What would yeah. you use cash for? What would I mean? Is there any sort of obvious use of cash that people still uh, need it for in China? Well, uh, to be very honest, you can do everything digitally. I mean, the other day I was uh, I was also in China and uh, walking on the street, and there are those guys selling, um, you know, selling this um, I don't know, the plastic toys for five hundred right. million. Okay on the street and they have a little QR code uh, attached to their to their backpack so you scan a QR code and you buy that thing you know from the street vendor uh, through WeChat so okay. even you don't need cash for and you can buy your sweet potato you know the baked potato yeah. for uh, one RMB for one basically a couple of cents right you also can buy it through WeChat but people still use a cash for um, um, they use it for, I mean, older people still like to carry cash. Mm. Yeah. So it just feels good. Yeah. But it's security um, as well, isn't it? So yeah. when you come back to Hong Kong, does it feel strange? Because, you know, Hong Kong is quite advanced, but oh my goodness, do you Hong feel Kong. like you're going backwards when you, you sort of have to pay with cash again? Minimum 40 years backwards. It's, it's just <laughs> a different, it's literally a different world. It's, it's just, you cannot compare. You literally cannot compare. Mm. Hong Kong is so many years behind that first of all in hong kong there's virtually no e-commerce at all there's no amazon is not here uh, tmall taobao is not really here i mean it's extremely inconvenient uh, when i order something from a supermarket it takes them uh, it takes them three days to deliver it to my apartment it's just crazy hong kong um is um, a very um, compact city, so people people just prefer to carry their shopping with them. Right. And also in Hong Kong, this is past time. If they buy something, they want to carry, they want to walk with it, they want to go to coffee shops. So shopping for them is more like uh, you know, like entertainment, like past time. And online shopping is not in China. Online shopping uh, is entertainment, 
and it, also there are a lot of technology like for example vr um, um you know this virtual reality thing uh, gamification uh, integration between tv is basically called social tv you're watching tv or you're watching um uh, you know, TV series on like Chinese version of Netflix and they suddenly something pops up on the screen and you scan a QR code and then you see a second screen through your uh, phone device, mobile device, and you can basically create a completely different experience through this multimedia use of stuff. So you can, um, like last time, I was watching something on TV um, um, and they asked me to scan QR code, you scan it, and then you can, uh, with this VR camera, you can scan your room and you can place characters from this movie inside your living room. Mm -hmm. So they will be acting, like you, you watch the movie, but at the same time, if you look through your mobile device, you see them acting the same thing in your living room. Right. Let's, let's talk a little bit about... It's for fun, but it, it, it just... Think what it can do in a couple of years from now. I'm curious about the video side of things because I'm seeing a lot of noise coming out of China about how people are using well video now. I mean, people are obviously familiar with YouTube in other countries, and what's happened? Obviously, you know, it's a different market in China on the video side. But in recent years, there's been an explosion of video, especially like talent driven video, isn't it? Where people are sort of creating these sort of mini stars, if you like, like yeah, YouTube yeah. stars. So what's the story there? Sort of fill us in because there's so much going on and we don't know what they're talking about and what the context is. You know, is this, uh, you know, are these people super famous on these talent shows on video? Start from zero. Teach us yeah. what's going on in the video side of things in China. Videos in China, it's just a crazy industry. You cannot imagine. So uh, let's start with that. In China, let's say 15 years ago, you could not imagine that somebody would actually pay for movies, mm. right? Mm. Or pay for entertainment. Everybody would buy uh, one renminbi uh, worth of you know fake DVDs, pirated DVDs, and watch online. At the same time, there were tons of websites that provided this kind of pirated movies, blah blah blah. Then everything changed about four or five years ago when Netflix-like services appeared, where you could actually live stream some content for free, and you could live stream some content for uh, for a small fee, right? When those uh, platforms um, exploded, many people started um, creating content by themselves and they basically uh, became their own production houses. Um, and tons and tons of bloggers appeared. Uh, what kind of bloggers? I mean, from a ridiculous, uh, you know, lady who is sitting there and eating bananas. That's right, a very right. famous example. You know, she collected millions of followers eating bananas what is that about actually I, I see these like videos pop up randomly of like girls just eating on what, what's the appeal there like a girl just eating noodles but you know there's like a million followers am i missing out on something what's the yeah you are you are because well uh, in china right now it's a huge single market so a lot of people are single a lot of people actually marry much 
later. Mm. So there are several implications. For instance, pet products, yeah, so anything for pets and generally this pet market, you know, getting baby hamsters or cats or dogs is on the rise. At the same time, people are looking for company. So if I'm eating alone, my dinner alone or my breakfast alone or lunch is usually eaten with colleagues or classmates, but uh, breakfast and dinner is eaten alone, they like to tune in Hmm. and watch somebody else eat. Interesting. So that creates live that or is it just live? To... Yeah, sometimes live. And uh-huh. if it's a famous blogger, then you just watch her. Let's eat together. Some... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and uh, yeah, have you ever been tempted to do that? Well, you you must uh, consider because Korea is another huge market that does it. Mm. Uh, there are boys that are 14 years old and they make millions US dollars by just consuming. I think they're constantly eating for at least four or five hours a day. They're consuming tons of food and people pay monthly subscriptions (laughs) to tune in and watch them eat. Just watch them eat. So for China, it's not about, you know, constantly um, watching them eat or subscribing to something, though there are bloggers like this. It's right now, it's primarily about live streaming. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it went through several stages. There were videos, like longer videos. For example, a very famous blogger, Papi Jiang. She's one of the highest paid bloggers. She is a girl from Shanghai. She studied film and producing and she created those really fun, um, I would say anecdotes. Yeah. So she shares those anecdotes from her life and, Mm -hmm. you know, boys and girls, blah, blah, blah. So she's really funny. She, uh, her popularity is just beyond compare long videos and uh, really, really well done. Um, then it went into short movies. So people just wanted to get access to places where they can usually not go. For example, it's a fashion show, and one of the bloggers shows you, um, you know, a short video how, uh, you know, things are behind the scenes. Um, and right now, it's all about live streaming. And when you think about live streaming, it's not like um, you don't really need to have a theme. There are bloggers that live stream how they walk to work, how they wake up, how they brush their teeth how they, I do not know, plant flowers. Um, Once you hook your audience on you as personality, then whatever you live stream is up to you. People are just going to watch it because they feel that they are participating in your life and they have a connection and a relationship with you. Mm. And that's very unique to China. And right now, if you get to China, to Shanghai, Beijing, or any first or second tier city, you probably cannot enter a shop or a restaurant and just enjoy your meal without somebody jumping up and starting uh, starting singing a song or coming and you know sticking that camera into your face as a foreigner because they are live streaming and they are entertaining their uh, audiences hmm. right and this is this is crazy and right now they also have those platforms like uh, for example Douyin that's a um, uh, rather popular platform right now um, where two independent bloggers with their channels and with their fans are challenging each other to live stream challenges. So, for example, I would say, Graham, let's shake um, our, I do not know, uh, shoulders. Yeah, it sounds funny, but like imagine we are like shaking shoulders. Mm -hmm. It's a 15-minute challenge. So the only thing we do, we're shaking shoulders on camera and millions of people are watching and they are voting who does it better. (laughs) Right. And how, how do they make money out of that? Is it just advertising or is it subscription again? No, well, it's not. It's tips. So basically you right. can tip 
clogger. You can also buy them. So you can buy them a gift. For example, they can buy you a Starbucks coffee. They can buy you a car. They can buy you a horse. They can buy you an apartment. I mean, it's mm-hmm. crazy stuff. At the same time, they can just send you Hongbao, which is the basically a, a red envelopes, right? The, the, right, the yeah. money, money, uh, uh, money uh, tips. Yeah. And that's how they make money. Um, I know one guy from South Africa who um, about a year and a half ago um, uh, discovered Miao Pai. It's one of the live streaming platforms in uh, China. So a friend of his told him, oh, check it out. It's an interesting thing. So he is literally a farm boy in South Africa, blonde. He, um, uh, you know, live streamed his farm life for like 20 minutes. On the first day, he had four viewers. On the second day, he had 20. On the you know fifth day, he basically had several hundred people tuned. Um, four months down the road, it was his birthday, and he received his first gift of about 90,000 RMB, which is, let's say, 15,000 US dollars. Mm. After that, he quit his life on the farm and he moved to Shanghai. So right now, he's a famous blogger and vlogger. He even speaks a bit of Chinese, and he lives high and life in uh, in China now. So yeah. Living the dream. So if I was to move to China and I was to set myself up on one of these platforms, what advice would you give me? What could I make it as? How could I, I'm not going to do the shaking shoulders thing. Sounds like somebody's <laughs> already done that. What, what sort of room is there for a foreigner to sort of crack it in that market, especially if they can't speak that great Chinese? Yeah. Um, I think it needs to, you need to show people something different. So, for example, this guy from South Africa, he showed them a mm. different side of life. Oh, there is a farm and there are, you know, three cows and uh, it's yeah. so beautiful. And, it's oh quite analog as well, isn't it? In a digital world, it's quite sort of refreshing, isn't it? Right. It's very refreshing. And also, you need to stand out. So, if you are a foreigner, you have so many opportunities in the market because people will remember your face and people will also share. They find something fun, interesting, unusual something they haven't seen before, they're going to share. So there's no formula, uh, but some people were successful, uh, you know, sharing, I don't know, relationship advice. Some people were successful foreigners. uh, They traveled to China or they traveled the world and they tried all the street food. You know, some people, as you said, shaking shoulders. So there's no recipe, but you need to be different. You need to be original and you just need to find a platform that's not yet so crowded. Mm. You know, um, if you now go to uh, Miao Pai or Mei Pai uh, or uh, Douyin, it might be a bit, you know, overpopulated and it's difficult to break through this noise. Mm. So there's not like one platform like we would understand YouTube is the platform. I mean, there's other sort of video streaming platforms like Vimeo, but, you know, it's nothing compared to YouTube as the channel. It's like the channel. Right. There's different channels and those sort of come and go. Um, right. You know, they don't have sort of any particular consolidated platform, which you say, right, just everybody get onto that. Right. So in China, there are more than 60 platforms that are unique to that market. And new platforms are dying and, you know, being born all the time. Mm. So um, there are major platforms that everybody knows, like, let's say, Chinese version of YouTube or WeChat or Weibo uh, or Douban. But... Um, if you are looking at China market from the perspective of I want to break into that market and I want to become an influencer, uh, it's much better to look at smaller niche platforms and to catch them before they go really big and viral. So mm-hmm. for that, 
you probably just need to um, yeah to, to stay on top of what's happening. Just set yourself a Google alert with like new uh, social media platform, uh, you know, is uh, popular in China, something like that. So when something mm -hmm. comes up, you will get a Google notification and then you set up your account and then you just start live streaming. That's you interesting, yeah. Read. You don't need. Uh, many Chinese right now, first of all, they study abroad, they go abroad, they travel, they speak the language, but they are interested to see a different side of life, a different country. If you come from a country like um, you know that they haven't heard much about or from before, that's also an advantage. How is life uh, like in, I do not know, in Guatemala or in Russia? South Africa as an example, right. South Africa, yeah. Vladivostok. What about yourself? I mean, you're instantly recognizable, as I keep saying. But I mean, you said to yourself, you're blonde, you stand out. You're obviously not Chinese from, you know, look <laughs> from the outside, right? Even though you speak fantastic Mandarin and so on. What about yourself? Have you? I know you do Ashley talks, but do you do anything on the social media platforms on streaming? I mean, you know, do you sit down and stream your dinner, or what do you do? I mean, in terms of right. streaming, right? right. So for me, uh, actually, that's a fantastic question because I mean, running a social media agency and running a couple of social, uh, you know, platforms, um, it was very difficult for me to start sharing my personal life again because mm -hmm. I come from a uh, uh, from that place that okay, nobody would be interested, and you know, this is weird. But about a year ago, I decided that for um, for business purposes and also for the personal growth, I would say targets, I need to start sharing my life and building my uh, personal brand. Mm. So it's slightly different. It's not really, you know, uh, sharing with um, uh, Chinese consumer or let's say Chinese, Chinese general public, how I eat my dinner, but it was more about sharing my business journey and what I do daily and um, uh, how life in China and Hong Kong and business in Hong Kong is um, so I started a YouTube channel, um, and I can tell you for the first um, for the first probably four months, I I didn't have many views from mm -hmm. the per video, and it was a lot of uh, a lot of effort, and I felt that oh you know nothing is happening. But then at one point, one of my videos went uh, viral, and I instantly got like 700 subscribers to my YouTube channel. Um, and then from there onwards, you start building, right? Then you get invitations to uh, like Alibaba thing. And then you get invitations to speak at amazing events. And then you get, um, you know, you start uh, writing a book and then you get your own TV program and now the podcast, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So even in professional setting, you can see how this definitely pays off. Mm. If you, uh, however, again, for me, um, I didn't go to the blogger route, yeah, blogger as of, you know, B2C blogger. Uh, a, a colleague of mine in the office, her name is Susie, she actually did. She is a famous blogger in China, and she is uh, blogging about, um, uh, you know, stationery and journaling, and basically she travels, and then she creates those beautiful paintings of, uh, you know, places and food, etc., etc., and she records it and shares on social networks. She's got, she, she has got hundreds of thousands of uh, fans and uh, brands like GoPro come to her and, you know, fly her all around the world. So it is possible to do it even now. You just need to pick what you want to do with your personal brand. Is it going to be B2B, B2C oriented and, you know, where, they, where, where you want to take it? Mm. 
I want to ask you a question, which I think people will be instantly curious about China, which is that you're a foreigner in China, and obviously you've written a book about China, so you, you're you, you are an authority, to, and you know you have you know very deep experience in the, the Chinese market. Is it easier as a foreigner to succeed in China than it is for? A local Chinese person, and the reason I ask is that because I sometimes think that people look at foreign markets and say, "Oh, it's going to be hard because I'm an outsider, I'm foreign." How about for yourself? Because you know you've written a book, you've got a social media agency, you've done a lot of things, and you know you, you've mastered the language. What are your thoughts? To so anybody sort of looking in at China, is that an issue? Yeah, yeah, great question. I actually think in my uh, honest opinion, it is a huge advantage. When I got to China um, back in uh, 2005, 2006, um, like I felt like a celebrity. Hmm. People would take pictures with me on the street, and if you would, I mean, I could get access to the owners of you know multi-million-dollar companies and maybe billion-dollar companies just because I was a foreigner, right? Um, so. <laughs> It's definitely not the same right now in places like Shanghai and Beijing and Guangzhou because there's a lot more foreigners and Chinese people are generally, you know, very comfortable with them by now. But you still get special treatment. You still get special treatment. Um, it is harder maybe in some aspects because um, a lot of foreigners come with a wrong uh, expectation of China. They think it is all about, uh, you know, it's all about uh, mm, uh, one thing, but in reality, it's all about another thing. So my advice would be if you go to China and you want to succeed there, just come open minded, just mm -hmm. learn, just make local friends, you know, build those relationships, build those, those guanxi. And, uh, and it's, I still believe it is a huge, huge advantage. And also it is a, a question of your mindset. Is your mindset enabling you to succeed in that market or is your mindset prohibiting you from succeeding in that market mm -hmm. if you feel that you are inferior in terms of the language um okay but uh, i think it is also an advantage you're bringing something to that table you can learn basic chinese if you're not willing to learn that's your problem but exactly. you're bringing you're bringing um you know experience from outside of china that's what they're really interested about you're bringing a different perspective you're bringing a lot, a lot of things into that market. So come there with open heart, heart open mind, learn, uh, master the language to whichever level you have to or you want to, and just work hard. People appreciate that. Make genuine connections with people and genuine, build genuine relationships. That will always pay off, not only in China, around the world. And China is uh, is uh, a fantastic place to do that because, as we all know, Guanxi and relationships are driving business opportunities and uh, all. It's life everything, isn't it? Hey, let's talk. You mentioned that people come to China with expectations, and sometimes those expectations aren't the right expectations. And I, I want to dive into this a little bit because you've written a book to help people understand. Right. What are the common things people get wrong, if I can use that word, about China from the outside. What are people sort of, you talk about people coming to China and they think it's going to be this, but it actually is that. In the context of the e-market, what are the common things that people are getting wrong? Especially, I mean, let's sort of make this easy. When people write about China, 
you know, when people are sort of commenting from the West Coast of America or Silicon Valley, what sort of things do you think are common misconceptions about the Chinese e-market? Um, well, I think the first misconception is that Chinese consumers are just buying and uh, they are buying everything and nobody understands why are they buying, but they are just big shoppers. That's not true. They are extremely sophisticated consumers. They know why they are buying. Yes, they have different motives to the rest, to many, you know, foreign countries and Western countries. They know why they are buying. They're extremely sophisticated. They know what they don't want. Uh, they know what they want to often, but not always. Um, they expect very high level of customer service. They are not cheap anymore. You know, a lot of com uh, companies come and say, okay, we want Chinese consumers and cheap, cheap, cheap. Uh, it's not about cheap. It's about good and reasonable. So they still need to feel that they're getting a good deal. Um, um, also luxury consumption, for example, a lot of people write about, you know, luxury consumers in China and they refer to, um, um, people from, you know, right now, third and fourth tier cities that still want, um, uh, big brands, etc. But now more and more people are trying to find personalized products and not only brands, but they also want, um, you know, tailor stuff. And it's not, um, anymore about spending big money and, um, uh, not only getting, you know, getting that reputation, getting that face. Yeah. The means it's also about, um, feeling that this is something that sets you apart. And even if people in my, let's say, circle will not know this designer or this brand or this tailor-made good, I need to feel good about it. Mm -hmm. They are also more about affordable luxury, not like hard luxury. So um, what very few people understand when they comment about China is also how complex it is. You cannot just say Chinese consumers or Chinese digital or Chinese social media because it is like Europe. Yeah, uh, Each mm -hmm. little bit and each city and each province is completely different. Uh, is they have their own buying behavior, preferences, social networks, uh, reasons to buy or not to buy, etc., etc., etc. So um, you uh, very very few people don't oversimplify China, yeah. So this oversimplification and also bringing bringing in that mm, uh, I would say uh, um, that old school thinking that China is cheap, China is all about good deals, China is loud, China is this, China is that. Uh, I think these are the major problems. Mm. Well, that, I think this is the the curve which every country and culture goes through when it evolves, isn't it? And often, you know, any kind of market that develops starts from one position and the consumers develop as well. They get knowledge, they become mature, they have experience, they start like you know, what people have as expectations of Chinese consumers, so to speak. And that has sort of been a reputation that's followed them. But things have moved on, especially, I imagine, in the tier one cities that people are a lot more, you know, complex, as you say. And, and it's not only complexity. Just think about it. I mean, previously, uh, talking about China, um, it was all about educating the market. So I'm the brand or I'm the company or you know and I educate the market I tell them how uh, you know to drink coffee and how to eat chocolate and how to do sports and how to play basketball and how to use whatever whatever but right now it's the consumer that's educating uh, 
a foreign brand or even a local brand on how to better serve them. So that those that era of education is over. Anyone that comes to China thinking they okay, I'm going to teach them how to use, you know, how to drink wine as an example from years ago. That's yeah. gone. It's gone for sure. It's gone, it's gone, it's gone. Um again, it's gone for first and second tier cities, yeah? Um and then this era of education is uh going to uh third and fourth tier cities. Right, yeah, so right. it's, it's different. Um and right now Chinese consumers they're extremely demanding and they are telling you, guys, we want you to, you know, to provide exceptional service 24/7 and it needs to be done on our terms in our local language and and uh, for example you cannot bring us this uh, let's say i do not know certain design of clothing that fits european bodies but doesn't fit us and you know have us buy it uh you need to adjust it and you know that's how we want it that's how we don't want it uh and it's happening everywhere in terms of digital technology also they say guys we don't want to buy uh through your website through e-commerce luxury brands you need to create an outstanding experience not just be luxury and be old school you need to actually push your headquarters to change the way you work for us in our market because that's what we want mm-hmm. for next time for the next ashley talks can we go into some of those stories some real case studies about what is happening you talk about the consumers teaching the market teaching the brands can you give us just an insight now give us one example of something from your book maybe about where consumers have taught brands and then maybe for part 2 as the follow up we can really sort of go in and sort of indulge the listeners in really what's going in going on at the the grassroots level in china in, let's let's go back to that subject where in China has consumers taught brands and, you know, what kind of examples, what's interesting out there where, you know, not necessarily a brand that's come from outside, it could be a local brand. Yeah. Um, like, for example, uh, let me give you an example of a um, um, uh, cocktail. So it's basically a cocktail uh, mix, uh, a local brand. Uh, they are an alcoholic cocktail mix. Don't ask me what that thing is all about. But it was extremely popular for several years in China. They were advertising everywhere. And that's traditional way to uh, launch product in the market and to basically occupy China market. You invest a lot of money in advertising. You invest a lot of money in the launch. You hire bloggers and you hire celebrities and you're all over TV, digital and uh, offline display advertising, right? Mm. So this company, a China-owned company, uh, invested millions of dollars, and I'm talking U.S. dollars right now, uh, for uh, a year and a half, and they were successful. So the moment this hype was over, the moment they started decreasing advertising spend, uh, their sales went nearly to zero. Why? Chinese consumers... um, you know, respond to advertising, but at the same time, they were demanding um, uh, much better product because basically nobody needed this cocktail thing. And it was like a party extravaganza. Okay, they advertise it's sort of cool, but they never um, they they never uh, understood the market, whether there is really this niche. Right. They never listened to feedback because um, in China right now, if you want to launch a new product, you don't create a product, launch it in the market, and then take it back nine months later if it didn't work. Usually, you um, you know launch a product online, you ask opinion and people feedback, and only if it's successful, you actually launch it. Mm-hmm. Like this, 
famous chocolate brand Reacher Sport. Uh, they launched, um, uh, you're going to laugh, it's called Unicorn Rita Sport. Wow. Unicorn. And you don't ask me what, what flavor it is, but I think... Rainbow flavor. Strawberry, yeah. It was strawberry and white chocolate and some other crazy stuff. They launched it. It, it became extremely um, uh, successful. So they had to basically manufacture more of it. And at one point, the price of that chocolate bar became two or three hundred US dollars, you know, <laughs> just because people basically bought and were selling. It, it was crazy. Was that so, done with, the, did they go out to the market first and do the MVP with the, you know, the, the influencers or, you know, their sort of small consumer groups and the consumer group? Actually, tr- actually it's quite unexpected. They, they launched it as a campaign. They said, guys, we've got this limited edition thing. Try it out, you know, for the holiday. Here is the, you know, unicorn flavored chocolate or whatever. That's and cool. suddenly it became such a hit that guys were absolutely unprepared to manufacture more of those chocolates. And, um, and uh, yeah, and then obviously the price inflated, blah, blah, blah. So these guys tested it. They understood that there was need in the market. And then they uh, introduced it as a, you know, a prolonged uh, campaign. And, you know, they, they probably shipped a couple of containers of that to China and it became the thing. But for this brand, the Chinese brand that I'm talking about, they didn't do that. They launched the product old way, the old way like they did always in China. You create a product, then you invest a lot of money, you educate the market, and then you're going to be fine. The moment you stop advertising, it must be fine because, you know, so many people buy and we use so many celebrities. It did not work. So their shareholder company, the big company, the big beverage company in China, they lost, uh, I think, 1.3 billion B with that. Uh, so obviously consumers are extremely different and they behave uh, extremely differently now. Um, another thing, uh, another example would be, um, uh, you know, um, quite what, what's it called? The, uh, like a delivery service. Let's, let's talk about food Panda, right here yep. in Hong Kong, we have yep. food Panda yep. or Deliveroo. Yeah. So a very similar service in China, um, uh, was actually, uh, in a bit of trouble last year, uh, every year on CCTV, China government, uh, so there is the CCTV gala, yearly gala, right? And CCTV is the national channel in China. Um, and every year they uncover some, uh, I would say they, they do some investigation journalism and they uncover some scandals. So, for example, uh, one year Nike was in the spotlight. Uh, they figured out that they're using very cheap materials, you know, as their uh, as their resins, yeah, for soles, etc. So basically, they're selling very cheap shoes, not the same shoes for China and for let's say U.S. market, right? So that was a big scandal. Another year, they figured out that this Fukushima, you know, Japanese. Um, nuclear nuclear uh, plant uh, leakage. Uh, some of the cookies that were sold in China from Japan were actually originated somewhere near Fukushima, but they were marked as manufactured in Tokyo. Mm. So that became also a huge, I would say, scandal, right? So last year, um, CCTV announced that they um, checked out this specific delivery, food delivery service and some of their vendors, some of the restaurants that... Um, that uh, uh, that were that were using this platform uh, were not what they claimed they were. For example, you claim that you are a food court in uh, place A, but you are actually operating out of a private kitchen, yeah. you know, your apartment. Uh, so they investigated that, uh, and of course, it's like national thing. So the whole 
China is watching it. So it was the national kind of, you know, uh, sentiment and uh, everybody was shocked. Um, a guy who was managing their social media, their marketing director, wrote uh, a social media post, which was uh, literally saying, oh, very sorry, we forgot to pay CCTV this year. Wow. As of pay, as of bribe. And that's usually, I mean, the Chinese, Chinese are... Mm, humorous yeah they like to joke and they like to poke at each other but that was just you know that was not a good move was it that was not a good move so this guy wanted to be funny instead of enemies and going through the crisis management (laughs) so chinese chinese consumers taught him such a big lesson first of all 70 percent of uh, consumers mentioned that they want to unsubscribe and not use this service anymore even though it was number one in china China government also fined them a couple of hundred thousand RMB. And uh, there was so much black PR, I would yeah, say, yeah, so yeah. much black. The damage um, is done, isn't it? I think those guys, have, you know, they're going to have to just retreat and hide in a hole for many years before they come back out, right? I mean, well, they came back a little bit, but they lost yeah. about half of their, uh, I mean, they lost about half or 40% of their user base. Right. And that gave, again, another splash. So other providers obviously could, you know, could um, uh, could uh, grab a bit of the pie and uh, grab a bit of the market. But that's what's happening. Chinese consumers are not passive anymore like they used to be. They are active and they are taking a stand and they know they have the power. They mm-hmm. have the power to bring even big players down. Yeah, and it's it's fantastic. And I don't think that, maybe that's one of the expectations that people get wrong about China as well. I mean, even to think of a TV station doing investigative journalism as well. I mean, that's something that maybe people aren't expecting. Hey, do you think we've unlocked the world's largest e-market tonight? I mean, what what do you want to talk about next? When we do the follow-up, what is the subject? Let's pick a subject from your book and let's go into that in a bit more detail. What really excites you? The most, I mean, the thing that excites me a lot right now about China is new retail. Yes. Um, Yeah. and I want to talk about that. Yeah, it's all about, you know, unified experience, online, offline, mobile, big data, uh, amazing technology, virtual windows and uh, mirrors. And I mean, it's crazy. And it's not the future. The future is now. Uh, China has uh, thousands of those shops in major cities already. And I experienced it firsthand as well last November and December. And every time I go to China, I make a point to go and experience it. And it's not just ahead of Hong Kong, because in Hong Kong, as I mentioned, we are 40 years behind, but it's literally ahead of the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, so that would be a good topic, I think, for next time. Excellent. We're not just talking about robots as well. We're talking about the whole experience yeah. as well. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's all the Alibaba stuff. It's just phenomenal. So we, that is a whole, well, we, we can get a whole episode out of that, unlocking that part, that whole retail, the new retail, as you call it. The new retail, yeah. Retail frontiers. Yeah. We've got a lot to learn. Ashley, it's been and phenomenal. This, and this is going to influence not only China, uh, for those people yeah. that think that what we talk about here is, you know, China, China, China. Um, with this, the, the pace of development in China and also these technologies, especially new retail, e-commerce, etc., these changes are going to spread far beyond China. And they're going to influence the way we do business and we do commerce outside of mainland in the rest of the world. Without a doubt. I mean, especially when you have people like Jack Ma who are actively out there. I mean, he speaks, you know, great English and he's out there. I mean, meeting Donald Trump and telling 
Donald Trump <laughs> that he's going to, you know, give the Americans a million jobs. Yeah. So, you know, through his, his e-commerce platform, it's just, you know, that is the start. That is really the, the, the vanguard, the, the tip of the spear, if you like, that sort of opens right. it up for everybody else. Because once, once he sort of makes that successful, then it clears the path for lots of other Chinese companies to go and do the same, right? And Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And we can talk about that as well. I think it's a fantastic topic too, to talk about China going global. And I know it's a, you know, it's a, a probably a, a funny slogan and people, people have different opinions about mm. it, but China going global is happening. It's happening, it's yeah happening uh, through Chinese companies acquiring Western counterparts. It's not that they are not, they are past that stage by now. They are going global for real in many, many different uh, ways, aspects, industries. And this is fascinating from philanthropy to technology, to acquisitions, to uh, creating joint brands and cross branding to uh, it, it's just amazing, fascinating stuff. Excellent. More to come. Part two coming up, we're going to dive into new retail and Ashley's going to share insights into what the future looks like now in China <laughs> and what we're going to see in, in the rest of the world. Ashley, fantastic author of Unlocking the World's Largest E-Market, a guide to selling on Chinese social media, which you can get on Amazon. And uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you've read the book, a review would be fantastic as well. So, you know, that's yeah. already doing well. I mean, you've done well with the reviews this far but you know always great to get more reviews so if you have a copy of the book you know get onto amazon and leave ashley a review i'm sure you read it absolutely every review as well so yes I do. good feedback as well and you'll be back next time and we will unlock more of china and the world thank you so much graham it was a great great pleasure you've been listening to asia tech podcast podcast podcast, podcast.